Full house. Yeah, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I am. I am very good. I, through my psychiatrist and my psychologist and a new lifestyle I've trying to adopt, am like way less anxious, at least this week. Well, that's good. That's a yeah. good change. Yeah, it's pretty good. I um, I don't think I'm like cured. I'm sure I'll get anxious like as soon as we, before we even end this podcast. But uh, the last like couple of days, I've noticed like things that usually trigger panic attacks in me have not. So I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty good. Oh, that's nice. I was like, uh, every afternoon before we record, I'm always like. Oh crap! We have this coming up. Uh, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Blah blah blah. Like, I just feel it creep in slowly, and then once we sit down and record, I'm like, ah, oh, that's fine. But like, just knowing that this is on my calendar ahead of time, like, sets in a little anxiety, which mm. is kind of strange. But it's always I'm good. One of the things I don't get anxious about. But this is also episode number sixty, so maybe we're getting the hang of it. That's awesome. Yeah, we like have no trouble like we used to. Just kind of, we were always worried about like, do we have enough stuff to talk about on a podcast? Like, of course we do. We sit and talk about this stuff on all the time every week, you know. So, so we uh, last week we brought on Andrew, who is back with us again. Hey guys. And then this week we are also joined by Nate Hopkins, who joined us a while back for an episode on stimulus reflex. Uh, So welcome, Nate. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for letting me crash the party. Anytime. What have you guys been up to lately? Been cutting tons of code on uh, our, our primary project, Code Fund. I, too, have been cutting lots of code. Finally got a big reskin out the door this week, so that's been pretty good and just kind of addressing bugs related to that as they pop up. Did you guys use a CSS framework for that, like Tailwind or something, or from scratch? We used a, a bootstrap thing. I would have liked to do it in Tailwind, but there's just so much you don't get out of the box with Tailwind that... And in the interest of moving quickly, uh, Bootstrap was a good choice. So we bought like a pretty slick theme for it and just integrated that and changed up the UI and some of the user experience. Nice. Yeah, that's like a, a common thing I think people hit with Tailwind is like, okay, uh, you don't have modals, you don't have tabs, you don't have you know buttons or anything. Like buttons are pretty easy to create, but... Like when you're really compared to Bootstrap, Tailwind is missing like all of the JavaScript and all like the component pieces, which can be a little frustrating if you're trying to move quickly because that takes some time to like, oh, you're making modals. Well, guess what? If you like make a modal, then people can still scroll the background, which is strange. So then you freeze the background, but then the scroll bar disappears and all your content shifts you know, eight pixels only on OS 10 and it's 12 pixels on windows or whatever. And you're like, wow, actually this is the reason why bootstrap is pretty handy instead of creating this stuff from scratch. Cause there's like that rabbit hole of things you go down trying to build it yourself. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is that you have those uh, tailwind stimulus helpers and I use them all the time. 
yeah, those have been pretty, you know, I guess learning that stuff the hard way, like the scrolling stuff, but that, yeah, the tailwind stimulus components have been pretty nice to have. Yeah. I'd say it's not all rainbows and, and flowers with uh, bootstrap JavaScript in the, uh, as you pipe it through Webpacker, we've had to uh, jump through a few hoops to get it all to work with, especially with the pre-bought skin. We've been, uh, we are using bootstrap at work and I'm having trouble getting the way we have our UI set up to talk to react with like jQuery and bootstrap. So that's an adventure I'm on, but I echo the sentiments of bootstrap though. Like I love tailwind and I'm, if I'm like, if I have a very, like somebody's giving me some designs, right. For me to implement, like Tailwind's awesome and I can crank it out, but when it's like, hey, design this yourself, I'm like, uh, and then I end up like coding these horrible, horrible things. So I'm anxiously awaiting Tailwind UI. I am as well. My trick so far is I just scroll through Steve Sugar's Twitter and copy some of the stuff that he's put out there. Not not a bad not a bad idea. Chris, you said you had some action cable stuff you want to talk about. You want to dive into that? Um, yeah, I've been, well, I had like a really rudimentary like log streaming thing that I built for Hatchbox a long time ago. So like when your server's getting configured, like it all stream stuff over action cable and show the logs on, on the UI, which is nice to know things are going on and whatever. And it's similar to kind of the same like thing that you have with Heroku logs, if you want to see what's going on, but you know, the action cable stuff is interesting in that, like the thing I was telling you about earlier or complaining to you about earlier was like, you know, on the back end, you like choose uh, channels to stream from and they have helpers for like a uh, active record model and there's none of that on the client side, which seems kind of strange because then you have to like, you know, pass in like an ID or whatever and a type. So, you know, that like this is sending stuff over for this like log for this app ID and so on. But like on the back end, you don't have to worry about it too much because you're like streaming and broadcasting from that. And I thought that was kind of strange. And I was curious if you guys... Um, cause I know Andrew and Nate, you guys have done a lot of action cable stuff. Um, I was curious if there was like a method you guys follow to handle the separation of those things, like on the client side. Um, cause it's kind of already built out on the back end, but it doesn't seem like it's, it's fluid on the front end. Yeah, I'd say, you know, there's some confusion or can be some confusion because of the syntactic sugar that that Rails provides you out of the box for broadcasting from like a, a model instance or something like that. But at the end of the day, the the connection identifier and essentially the channel you're broadcasting to is really just identified by a string. So if you can boil it all down to just that, essentially, this is... I went through this whole exercise when I did stimulus reflex and realized, oh, it's just a, a string identifier that I need to sync the client to on the back end. 
but that can be somewhat obfuscated from you through all the syntactic sugar when you broadcast just to a model. Yeah. Um, do you guys like, cause one of the things like I noticed GitHub does this with um, their streaming of, of things like, when you click on an issue or a pull request, like it will send a message over and say, like, basically subscribe me to this issue or pull request. And then when you navigate away with TurboLinks or whatever, um, or PJAX in their case, like it will unfollow that. Have you guys built anything like that where you are kind of like, because uh, originally I was I was setting up this like follow unfollow thing um, just with like, regular javascript but then i realized like probably if i just threw a stimulus controller on there that called the follow or unfollow i could really easily grab the you know app id or whatever and send that over and then i could stream from that app um, on the server side and set that up a little bit easier so that it was like kind of similar on each side i was curious if you had done anything in that route yeah, I've done something very similar to what you just described, and I think it's a terrific strategy. Are there? Have you run into any downsides, or how's your experience been doing that? It's been pretty seamless. I've I haven't run into too many issues doing things like that with stimulus. I mean, stimulus is intelligent enough to rewire your component, your, your client side components up when the DOM mutates. So you can do all sorts of crazy stuff to the DOM and stimulus will just do the right thing. But then, you know, when you receive a message, do you have to, like, how do you route from your, you know, if you're on a issues channel or something, you're like receiving updates from all the issues. Do you do routing in there or how do you set that up? Yeah, I guess if I wanted to, Eh, I don't know. I mean, a lot of ways to tackle that. Um, I don't know that I would be too keen on implementing my own routing mechanics inside of the wire up and the stimulus controller, unless it was pretty simple. Yeah. Cause, cause what I'm kind of doing is, and probably it's similar to um, what you've got with some examples with stimulus reflex, but like, you know, I have maybe a, a list of actions on the page and they can all receive updates. And I just have to like, you know, choose which uh, Dom element to go update based upon, you know, the update that comes through over action cable. So I have to like, you know, look at the ID and then go send the update to the correct element in the JavaScript. And it's one of those examples that kind of feels like, you know, that that's a good reason why probably, uh, Vuex and Redux and stuff kind of makes sense. It's like, uh, you know, we just have our data, then Action Cable can update it, and then the views re-render, and you don't have to worry about that like extra step in there. We've actually been able to <clears throat> do some of that without any Redux, which has been nice. We just set like our state on like the parent component, and then Action Cable comes in and it's like, oh, I'm just going to update the state on this parent component. And it just like filters down to all the children and it's like magic. Oh, that's nice. Um, what have, have you run into any, you know, uh, frustrations with that? Um, it's nice that with action cable, like you can send actions to a channel. So you have like multiple methods 
it's tough that you only get like one received method. Um, <clears throat> and so a way around that, like uh, Andrew helped me with at work was we like send hashes to the channel. Like we want to broadcast to the channel and then we like case statement that JavaScript side. So that's been the really like only frustration I've encountered. But other than that, like it's really simplified our code being able to like push some of the like, complexity of re-rendering just into like react knows how to re-render it. So we just have to broadcast this new thing. It updates. I mean, it really like I joke, but it feels like magic and it's, Definitely like a plus for using React. Yeah, because that's kind of the, I mean, it, it seems like I would expect maybe the received callback on the JavaScript side to tell me also which, you know, channel it was broadcast to, you know, because if you stream from um, five different things in the same channel, then there's no way to kind of differentiate them. And then I was stuck with the, uh, you know, a pretty long case statement in my JavaScript because there was different things it was doing. And I was like, it seems kind of strange that I can broadcast to a specific thing on the back end, but the client side doesn't have any idea of which specific thing it was coming from. Yeah. <clears throat> we, we set, we have multiple channels we connect to and we set state in the React component uh, for each channel. They get their own state. Um, but so like any kind of methods we wire to it are kind of specific to like the received method is specific to that channel in terms of react, but yeah, it is. I understand what you were saying too. Um, and that, yeah. Yeah. And I have a few of those, like I separate out, um, for example, like servers and, um, apps are separate channels cause they, obviously do different things, but then like, you know, if I'm listening to five different apps on the front end for any like deploying state changes or whatever, then it's like, I have to pass in the ID kind of redundantly into the hash that I broadcast, but it's also being broadcast to a specific um, channel when I say like stream from this app. So that seems kind of strange that it's like, you can do a generic uh, subscribe to a string and broadcast to a string, but they have helpers for, you know, broadcasting to a specific database record. So why isn't there an kind of a equivalent on the client side? And that may be just something that you need to go and add to action cable. So it might be a good place for me, uh, you know, me to go and see if I can contribute. I don't know. That's all I hear is you volunteering to go do that. Yeah, sounds like fun, huh? Um, which is related that uh, you've been having some fun with uh, just the different changes that Webpacker introduces to you know maintaining and building a gem that has assets. Uh, how have you been doing with that? I have not been doing well. Um, so we have resurrected Mad Men, which for those who don't know is an attempt at a new-ish uh, Ruby on Rails administration system. And so we had some code for this. We worked on it at RailsConf, and basically like I metaprogrammed the hell out of it, and we were like, oh, this is, 
this is bad. Uh, so we wiped it away and I started fresh with a rail six engine and like I was rocking and then I went to go delete a resource like using link to delete, uh, method delete, you know, data confirm all that good stuff, but it just kept making get requests. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? And then I was like, Oh, I don't have rails. UJS loaded. Oh, sprockets doesn't ship with JavaScript on by default anymore. Oh, Webpacker's not even in a rails engine. And it's kind of sent me on a spiral because I learned that my understanding of Webpack, Webpacker, Rails engines, and how they all work together is actually pretty small. Uh, so I am on a whirlwind. I have actually played with Webpacker and engines before. And it's funny you mentioned this. The other day I saw a PR in Webpacker to update the docs for engines. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't ship with Webpacker. So you have to specifically add Webpacker as a dependency in the gem spec. And then there's a few other things. I got it to work though. Um, I'll have to dig around and find that code. All, all the love in the land. I'll even throw bonus points if you would pair with me on it because like it's made me want to like give up on the project. Uh, and I think it's, I don't know. I just don't understand it well enough is my problem. And there's a lot of people that do, um, but like there's some documentation on how to do it uh, in the Webpacker like repository, but I feel like I'm always missing a step and I can't figure out what that step is. So I'm glad to know someone has experienced it, solved it. And if I heard right, I think you want to help me with it. So I'm excited about that. <laughs> I am definitely down to pair. I am not going to promise anything at all. <laughs> all I heard was I have solved this and I'm going to help you solve it. So. <laughs> It sounds like a good blog post too. I would like to read that. Well, after yeah. you guys spend four hours, you know, banging your heads against the wall, of course. <laughs> I like, I got Webpack dev server to run. Like I was so close. I guess I am so close, but like now it's like, it doesn't understand JavaScript pack tag. And I'm just like, now I don't know what to do. Like, this is why I love Webpacker so much in a Rails app. It's because it like takes all these things away from me. Um, and I can just use like oh, modern JavaScript. I know that's like a really worn out phrase, but yeah, now that I actually have to like figure it out on my own, I'm like, dang it. Yeah. I think that was, you know, one of the long-term kind of things that was going to be just hard moving to Webpack and, even what's funny is like I, I upgraded some older app. I mean, it's not very old, uh, but the sprockets changes and SAS-C stuff that happened like behind the scenes um, recently, like as it turns out, your config manifest uh, file in the asset pipeline, which I'd never really ever looked into. Like it was always whatever the default was. Um now it starts to compile uh, all of the files, I believe, in the app assets, like style sheets directory as, as separate things, very similar to the app JavaScript packs folder does. And it'll compile all those separate. Um, 
but I didn't pay attention. I didn't notice that. And the other day it was like, yeah, all your, uh, all your assets don't compile anymore. Just wanted to let you know that. And I was like, what? And it took me hours to go like, you know, find the commit or whatever that was like, oh yeah, this, this works totally differently now. Sorry. Um, cause it was like, you know, I would include files in the same folder, which would like depend on variables in the other file. And now that that second file um, gets compiled separately, it doesn't have those variables anymore. And I was like, wow, like that was uh, an important thing to know before I upgraded. And it wasn't like a major version change because it was like a dependency of a dependency or something. And it just like, everything's broken. All your assets sucks see ya (laughs) that was not fun Mm. Um, yeah i'm also like wondering about could i compile down the assets like go ahead and build the bundle and just distribute that um because like like pre-compile them all and yeah and just bundle that because that's the thing I could do. I even like experimented with using Laravel mix to do that, which is like, I hesitate to say it's their version of Webpacker because it's a really like awesome, pretty API around using Webpack. But like I brought that in and could get it to like compile down. But then I was like, how do I get this to the host app? So yeah. I don't and, know. and rails itself for like, action cable and rails ujs and all those things like now that has its own npm package that you install now they gotta publish and release that separately and that was kind of something you were hoping to avoid right with building a rails engine where it was like if you install this gem hopefully that's all you need you don't have to also update package.json in your app and yarn and all that yeah andrew just Link just to the pull requests he mentioned about the documentation. And if this is the case, like I don't deserve to be a developer because it's like a very easy step that I missed. So I'm not even going to talk about it anymore. (laughs) It's hidden in the docs folder, dude. No one would expect you to read that. (laughs) Yeah. It looks like it might work similar to how it used to work. Cause that was, I guess one of the nice things of, and I've done this before, like uh, been using rails 6.0, like beta or something. And then you also get the 6.0 beta um, rails, UJS or action cable node module, but then you might upgrade the gem of rail six to the latest version, but you might forget the node version and that sort of thing. And now it's like a whole other set of dependencies you have to worry about keeping in sync. And if you don't have to do that and you can just have it automatically included um, in your engine, then that saves a lot of trouble. Cause then you, you might need to release something simultaneously, you know, like we have new backend code that relies on new front end JavaScript. And if those aren't in sync, it's not going to work. So that, that probably, solves that problem which was just i guess introduced by webpacker yeah i had the same type of decision to make around uh, cable ready and stimulus reflex and i opted to 
have a separate NPM package that publishes, although I still keep the code all together. So I have like a mono repo and release a gem and a, an NPM package and keep the versions in sync, which is a little bit problematic because both uh, NPM and Ruby gems want to manage the version number. But my yarn publish essentially will just, it complains that the version number that the repo is already tagged with the version number, but it will still publish. So it still, it works out. Mm, yeah. Do you wonder, almost makes you feel like there should be some sort of like a bundle update or something that keeps them in sync. It's like, well, if you upgraded the gem for this, we should also upgrade the node module for it too or something. Yeah, I could write a little script to kind of help me. I've got right now, I've just got a little cheat sheet of instructions that I follow every time. Mm, that's a good idea. Um, what else is new? Anything interesting you guys have done on Stimulus Reflex or uh, GitHub Actions? I yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Andrew. No, go ahead. You started. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I've, I've been meaning to move the Stimulus Reflex uh, Expo site hosted over to Hatchbox and DigitalOcean. I just haven't had any time to do that. It was popular enough that I drained out all the free hours that Heroku provides. So right now, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I had to upgrade Heroku just to keep it running so people could access it and, and play around. Uh, another update that I've got on the Stimulus Reflex front is... Um, I was actually invited to come speak at Paris Paris Ruby Conference in, in February. Um, their travel reimbursement, unfortunately, is a little more geared towards Europeans than they are uh, for Americans. And so I'm trying to get the finances figured out so I can get over there. Um, so hopefully that all works out and, and you'll be able to see me do a presentation on building reactive apps with Stimulus Reflex at an actual conference. So that will be kind of fun. Will that be your first uh, conference talk talking about it? Yep. Yep, it would be. That's exciting. It'll make history, just like the everybody was talking about Phoenix Live View when it came out. So it's going to be you. <laughs> yeah, we will see. Andrew, you said you had some updates? Yeah. The Nate triggered a memory in me, though that this morning I was scrolling through my phone and Stimulus Reflex has a Discord channel we set up and someone messaged me this morning and said that they listened to Remote Ruby and it just, he said, it just clicked that you are you. And I was like, ah, yes, it's me. Um, but I've been messing with actions still. I've actually got like an interesting issue kind of because I have a, RuboCop linter action, which is by far the most popular action I have. And the scope of the API is increasing exponentially and becoming a problem. So I've decided to take like an interesting approach that I'm not sure how the community is going to feel about it yet. Although people I've shown it to like it basically, you know, there's all these options that you can pass to RuboCop. And slowly but surely, people have been asking for more and more 
um, of those options that they want to configure in the action. And some of them have been like understandable, but some of them have been like, I came down definitely no on like the other day, I think this has happened twice. People have been asking for the ability to only lint change to files um, when the action runs. And I was like, why do you want that? And they were like, well, because we have all these failing cops that are scattered throughout the repo that we're not going to fix. And we just want to like, we just want to compare like this branch and see if there's any um, failing lints on the changes. And I was like, uh, no, I think I am actually going to support that. But I def- I came down with this new format that I'm going to do, but I came down hard on that because I was like, look, like, A, that doesn't really make sense to me because I've worked on a team that did the same thing. And it, it just doesn't really make sense to me outside of the fact that maybe you want to keep like that history. But then again, that doesn't really make sense to me either because you can just go back in the history farther. But the other issue, I was like, you could, there's a RuboCop command. It's called like auto gen config or whatever, which will run through your project and it will create a, a file of all your failing lints. And basically it'll create a file to ignore all of them. And you can just include that in your RuboCop YAML file. So I was like, if anything, you should be taking advantage of that. If you're not going to fix the lint, then at least like ignore it in the to-do file so that you know, so that's not a problem. I was like, I don't really want to change the API scope just for that. But one thing I've been doing is as like, you know, cause you can pass um, input like variables basically to um, GitHub actions. And that started to get larger and larger. And then we, I ran into some issues where if you want to gem install with versions. So like if I want to have RuboCop version I don't know, 0.75. And then I also have another RuboCop plugin, like uh, RuboCop Performance, and I want that to be at a certain version too. You have to you have to gem install a little bit differently. You can't just do dash V for each of them. You have to do, like if you're doing it all in one big gem install, you have to do like gem install colon version um, for each of them. So that was creating some issues. So what I basically did is, I created the ability to add a config file in your repo because there are some limits with the way you can pass variables to the actions. And I couldn't do what I wanted to do, which is why like the, the way I implemented the, the version thing specifically became a bit of a problem. So now I have a YAML file that you put in your .github folder and it has all of the inputs and because I can define the way that YAML file is structured and I can parse it like on my own without GitHub doing it automatically, I can do a lot nicer things and hopefully fix up that version issue I'm having. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I like that. I mean, it's, it's consistent too with what a lot of, if you want to use GitHub actions or circle CI, you've got to add a, you know, hidden YAML file. So having a configuration in a YAML file, you want to probably check track changes to that over time anyways. So makes sense to put it in there. Um, does it feel good that you're like now having to maintain something that people are using or is it also the frustration alongside of it is like, right now I have to constantly like answer questions or now I've got to start telling people, no, we can't 
Azure one-off feature or whatever? Um, I think if I hadn't, I used to listen to the bike shed, like, I mean, I still do, but I basically went through and listened to all of them once. I, I think I've done it twice actually. And some of the earlier episodes with um, Sean Griffin and Derek Pryor, there was one episode in particular where they kind of talk about the issue of like um, people coming in and having like this one-off problem. They want you to stick their fix in for it. They open a PR and they put their fix in for it. And then they kind of talked about, you know, the dangers of doing that and just considering like now you're maintaining that code and if it breaks, you got to fix it. And there's all these other issues. So I've been very careful to try to adhere to that advice they gave and I'll have to try and find the episode. I have no idea where it's at, but I think that's helped a lot. So that part has not been that bad. Um, I have had to answer a lot of questions. A lot of people who they're like, Oh, the example doesn't work out of the box. And I'm like, yes, it does. And they're like, no, it doesn't. You have to add this gem, this Rubicop plugin to make it work. And I'm like, no, you are including that Rubicop plugin in your Rubicop config file. So it doesn't need it to work out of the box, you know, things like that. Um, I haven't gotten too frustrated with it yet, but I'm hoping that once I nail down this config file, uh, a lot of those issues will kind of be a little bit easier. Well, not the the answers, not the questions, I guess, but a lot of the, like the additions, like if they want to like append something to the Rubicop API or the Rubicop command we create, then this will make it a lot easier to do that. But I'm not sure how many more changes I'm going to add after this kind of gets cleaned up. Yeah, which makes sense. Like at some point you're going to have kind of the base of what you want to do. And if people want to go and fork it and extend it or whatever, then they can do that. And if they choose to, you know, say here's some new stuff, maybe I'll that, that you wouldn't mind maintaining. They can make a PR and whatever, but yeah, it's one of those interesting things is something grows and gets usage. Like I'm still maintaining a gem called simple calendar that was literally just a test. Like as a beginner rails developer, I was like, I've never made a gem before and I'm going to try making a calendar one. Cause I think at the time there was only like the table for gem or something like that. And it would generate kind of a calendar out of, I don't think it was necessarily tables, but it was divs and stuff that formatted like a table. And I was like, maybe I'll build something similar to that. And then people started to use it and file like issues that it didn't work. And I was like, yeah, cause I never intended it to really work or other people to use it. And uh, I still maintain that today, but luckily it's like, these are the, fi- these are the like features I'm going to offer. If you want to like add more stuff, you can fork it and like, that's that's my boundary like we're done on development here because i've never really used that too much in my own projects it was just like an experiment so it's much easier probably when you're like actively using your own library that you maintain than one you don't (laughs) well funny enough the rubicop action is definitely my most used out of all the ones i've had not when i say all i mean like three or four but i don't actually use any of them. <laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. It, I mean, this is 
you know, like one of the easiest ways to learn. And it's really good experience to like go build that and then have to maintain it for other people because you end up being forced into like, okay, where do I set my boundaries? And like, you have to make a bunch of decisions that you couldn't really simulate if you were trying to like teach yourself how to maintain a project. You can't, can't present yourself with like weird requirements that crop up. Like it only happens when people are asking you real stuff. So I bet it's been a good experience to go through all that. Yeah, it has. And luckily what I did in the beginning is I created the RuboCop one and then used that to basically create others. Because once I had that one good and working, then it was super easy to adapt it to other linters like Hamelin and Standard RB. Uh, so I created those as well. But the RuboCop one was the the one that started getting all the feature requests and they slowly but surely drifted apart. And I'm hoping once I nail down this config file that I can bring them all back under using like a config file for each of them. And that won't be a lot cleaner. And then I would like to make more. Um, so yeah, it's pretty nice. It's been nice that I had that base and was able to just kind of edit a few things here and there to get it to work for other gems. But yeah, we'll see. Yeah. I, I've still, and, and I messaged you about this earlier this week, but I was using GitHub actions to run tests and I don't know, sometime in the last week they've started to um, fail with like the, I notify watchers limit being too low. And it like happens when I run rails test and, Normally, you would see that from like guard watching too many files in your repo and stuff. But I mean, I didn't even have guard in my repository. So I'm not really sure what's going on there or if they changed the I notify limit in the default um, image or whatever it runs under. I'm not sure. So I've, I need to figure that out. But if anybody's run into that and fixed it, let me know. I haven't been. I know GitHub actions are changing probably pretty frequently and I'm sure you've seen that uh, in your development. So I've been kind of like, Oh, I'll just continue relying on circle CI. And if GitHub actions is running successfully, then great, but I'm I'm not going to make it my only CI for a little while. Yeah. Once I started using my own Docker image, it, things got a lot easier, but Circle. I, I recently, I'm working on a blog post. I'm pretty sure I said I was working on this last week too. So spoiler alert, it's not done yet. But I compared GitHub Actions at the end of it with Circle CI and Circle is just so much faster. Like, e- like even if you want to have all your stuff in GitHub Actions, it's, Circle CI is like 200% faster, I'm pretty sure for most cases. Wow, that's pretty significant. Um, do you think it's just the hardware they're running or is there other factors maybe? I am not sure. I imagine that I think they have their caching down a little bit better. Um, I know the fact that I'm using my own Docker image is having somewhat of an impact, but on circle CI, you use a Docker image as well. So unless I'm just not caching that as efficiently, well, actually I take that back. Because the time 
that gets lost is not usually um, in the Docker image spin up. It's like if you're on a cold cache, then bundling on Circle versus GitHub Actions takes a drastically different amount of time. Um, and then just running like the commands in general, they're they're just slower on GitHub. Yeah, maybe they're allocating better, more CPU or something to them instead. I don't know. That's interesting because that that certainly would be a good place to measure that. Yeah, if if it takes that much longer to compile Noco Geary and whatever, that will give you a good idea of like you know we have a much slower CPU on one than the other. Uh, but yeah, that I need to switch to the Docker image too, just because. And there was a comment recently too on this, but like set up Ruby action on GitHub only goes up to like Ruby 263, which is strange. And then they haven't made 265 available yet. And there was a comment that was like one of the GitHub people working on it that was like, well, we don't really want to compile all these for you. So it was like, okay, well, then why does set up Ruby exist at all? Like, why wouldn't we just use the you know, Ruby 265 Docker image. And why wouldn't you recommend that as our default? Um, So maybe that's going to change. Maybe they took one approach and it didn't quite work out. And they're like, "Uh, we should shift gears and, you know, encourage people to use Docker images too that already have Ruby set up and everything. So I don't know. Yeah, but there's problems there too. Um, Yeah, I can shoot you a link to the Docker image. I have it. I definitely know I can speed it up a little bit more than it is right now because right now it's just using a base Docker image. It's not using Alpine or anything. So there's definitely some speed improvements that could be had, but it it works pretty quickly. Um, and like to the point where I haven't really needed to like go like speed it up more. I mean, I think it takes like, I don't know, 15 to 30 seconds to spin it up on github actions uh, that's, that's good yeah that's pretty quick so yeah we'll have to i'll have to try that and um i'm curious to see how it'll go because yeah i like you know fiddled with it for a little bit did a screencast on it and was like oh cool i'll like set this up for a few apps and it, it'll be nice to have everything in the same tool with my source code and all that and then it was like uh, I'm starting to go down that rabbit hole of fiddling with this more and more often just to keep it from running. And, you know, that started to be like, all right, I think it's time to just put this down, go back to work and do, you know, useful things instead of fiddling with this. But that kind of feels like the case with setting up any CI for the first time. Yeah. The other problem with running on a default Docker image is you don't get like the default Ruby Docker image doesn't have node. Um, it doesn't have yarn and it doesn't have any of the stuff you need for system tests. So there's, and then you have all the, you have the stuff for Postgres that you need to add. Um, so yeah, doing it in my own Docker image was nice because I guess maybe the, the difference is negligible. I don't even know if that's the right word, but because I don't actually, I don't have to run, I don't have to set up node. I don't have to set up Ruby, then node and then other, th- and then app to get stuff for um, Postgres and then maybe do some other things later in the file. Like that one Docker image has everything it needs right out of the box, node, yarn, the stuff for running system tests. Like 
Google Chrome and Chrome driver and the extra packages for Postgres. And it has, I even like stuck some environment variables, like some base environment variables in there. So it's just, it's been so much nicer once I figured out how to get that to work. Yeah, it's a good point. Cause uh, I know for circle CI, I'm using like uh, Ruby and node and uh, some, you know, browser setup all in, one image already so i don't even have i didn't even think about that but that's definitely a difference between the two because the way that i'm i know i'm installing like libpq and whatever for post postgres which um it's definitely not getting cached and that's a redundant thing to do every single time so yeah that's a great point i'll have to switch that over um anything else you guys want to talk about before we end this episode I am I am fresh out of hot things to talk about, except I did order something from Hot Topic, which is a Hot Topic itself. I ordered. Did we talk about this? Uh, I think we did. Maybe it was. I can't remember if we talked about this on the last episode or we just talked about this in general. The Office version of Clue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I know we talked about it at some point. It arrives. It is here. Awesome. My life is complete. Yeah, you're gonna set up a big party to have, you know, a big clue playing. Yeah, I'm gonna invite one other family over. It's gonna be a really big night. <laughs> um, I, there's a, a place literally a, a block from my house that just opened called Recess, and it's a bar that has like all basically all, uh, the concept is like all the games you played in school at Recess. You can go play them as an adult with beer which I thought was a pretty fantastic idea. That rules. So that's my weekend. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm out of stuff. I'm going to do drunk four square. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about you guys? Anything else? I did realize this after the last episode. Um, Nate, our traffic for code fund is like over a million hits per day, right? Yeah, we're doing about uh, 1.4 in ad impressions daily, and that's not the only traffic. So that's that's just our ad renders. Yeah, so I think I I think I was I couldn't remember how many per month, but yeah, so it is higher than I think I thought I said. That is awesome. What uh, are you running on Heroku? Yep, we are on Heroku, and we're tuned well enough to not have too terrible of a bill. I mean, I'm sure we could bring that hosting cost down, but it's just a matter of how much developer time or ops time we want to put against it. It's it's going to be hard to justify with a small team right now. Right. It's one of those willing to pay the bill because uh, you've got a little bit more money than time at the moment, and then that bill creeps up and it'll shift at some point, but... Yeah, that's awesome. Are you guys using the like large performance dynos and stuff, or um, what's your setup like? No, we're still on the uh, standard dyno, so like the the second tier of the the standard dynos, and our database is still. Uh, I think we're just on a standard two plan for that one right now. That's fantastic. So presumably, good caching and stuff. Good caching, some some creative use of Postgres features like table partitioning and things like that. 
Ooh, that's good. And we'll have to talk about that in the next episode. I'm going to dive in more into, into that kind of stuff, especially because Rails 6 is going to have better. Well, Rails 6.1 is going to have um, more multi-database support and all that stuff. So I'm sure people would like to learn more about that. Yeah, definitely. We, we uh, tried to roll out MultiDB on one particular API endpoint, and I we, we need to go audit the code. I'm not sure if it's the code or if we just configured something wrong, but we essentially took our system offline <laughs> trying to run that experiment. Oh, no, that's bad. That's funny. Um, anything else you guys uh, have before we wrap up? I'd, I'd just throw in there, go take a look at Cable Ready, the Cable Ready gem. Uh, this is looping back to the beginning of our conversation when you were talking about just emitting logs out to a web browser. Essentially, what Cable Ready does, it's the, it's the piece that sits underneath um, Stimulus Reflex, but it allows you to have a background job emit DOM um, mutations or events. You can essentially modify client DOM to anybody that's connected on the, the channel, the WebSocket channel. So it's pretty cool. You can emit uh, DOM events. You can append uh, HTML into the DOM. You can remove items. You can just change the contents of it. You can do all sorts of DOM operations from a background job. Uh, that's super nice. That would definitely come in handy. Um, most of my stuff's just simply like uh, replace or find uh, or, or append an element or something right now, but as it grows, it will definitely be able to take some good use of that stuff. Cause that is certainly like where I foresee it going, getting more complex and then just being like kind of a mess pretty easily. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah. With the new skin we just launched, we are now running cable ready and stimulus reflex in production. Well, that's exciting. I'll have to have you show us like uh, where you're using it at. I'd like to see that. Yeah, for sure. It's in areas that I've had to re-implement in other apps, but using React like inside of Rails. And the amount of time I sent, spent like hooking up Simulus Reflex and getting the thing I wanted to work versus the time it took in the past for me to... Oh, well, now I got to add React and now I got to figure out how that works. Now I got to wire it all up to the front end and the back end and now I have to have serializers and yada, yada, yada. It's, it was so much nicer like to spend like like 30 minutes like doing that work here with Stimulus Reflex than spending like days doing it with React. I'm sure Jason can relate to that a little bit. Yeah, I'm actually reading through all that stuff right now <laughs> that you're talking about it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that's probably it for this episode. Uh, as usual, you should give us a rating on iTunes if you enjoyed this episode. And um, yeah, I guess you guys want to share where they can find you online? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll go. It's, um, I'm Hopsoft everywhere. Hopsoft on Twitter, Hopsoft on GitHub. And I am Andrew M. Codes everywhere. Sweet. Well, uh, thank you all for joining us. And Chris, we will we'll do it again next week. Yes, sir. See ya.